Hello and welcome to In Relation 2, a show that seeks to give you insight into news developments by promoting global discourse in a changing world. Our goal with this podcast is not to scratch the surface of what is happening globally, but rather it is to dive deep and gain a better understanding of it. This podcast is brought to you by Boston University, and I'm Maria, one of your hosts. In this episode, we are kicking off our new mini-series, Meet the Writers, by bringing on Diana, an associate writer for the International Relations Review print publication, and like the rest of us, she too is an international relations enthusiast. Tune in and listen to Diana's career development tips and Diana's international relations journey. Hi, Diana, and welcome. Hi, thank you for having me. No, we're so happy to have you. So, I think it would be a good way to begin today's episode by having you introduce yourself to us, to me and the audience. Where do you come from? What are your interests? Anything you feel the need to talk about? Sure. So, my name is Diana Reno. I am from Westport, Massachusetts, but I've also lived in Rhode Island, Illinois, Vermont, etc. And I'm currently a sophomore studying IR on the Middle East and Africa track and business and economics track. Besides the IRR, I'm involved in a couple other organizations on campus, including Delta Phi Epsilon. Oh, that's so interesting. Um, What is the Delta Phi Epsilon about? Um, It's just an international relations and business frat, uh, pre-professional. That sounds amazing. And just out of curiosity, out of all the places in which you have lived, which one did you like best? Definitely Vermont, but that's kind of a given. Um, I went to a very small school right next to um, a ski resort, so they took us skiing for free, and it was very, very nice. Oh, yeah, that sounds great. So how did you become interested in international relations, and when did this interest evolve? I think like most people, I came in having no idea what I wanted my major to be. And I was interested in math, I was interested in economics, history, and political science, which was my original declared major. And so I was very excited to be able to combine all of that into one major. And I realized after my first or second IR course that this global perspective is what I've really been missing from my education, especially going to a small Catholic school. I was very excited to get both the global perspective and the incredibly interdisciplinary perspective. Wow, yeah, that's that's amazing. I also grew up in a particularly small school. Coming here at BU, I had the same experience so far. Okay, so you seem very, like, like you have figured out what you want to study exactly. So do you see any particular job that you want to acquire in the future? I'm starting to realize that probably... NGOs and nonprofits are really my way to go. I've done a little bit of work recently in some nonprofit organizations, and it's just, it's so rewarding and it's so exciting to be doing directly impactful work. And so I'm very excited to probably go into that in the long run. Oh, wow. Do you have a particular organization in mind, or you just want something that has a social impact? In terms of nonprofits, I'm hoping to someday kind of work in either like international reproductive justice, kind of women's rights and gender security issues, or obviously like forced displacement and immigration issues, and whether that be in the United States or internationally. Right. Yeah. I also read that article of yours about um, 
the system with the refugees in Uganda that you wrote recently in the IRR. If someone in the audience has not checked it out yet, please check it out. It's amazing. And now having you say that, I would really like to shift the focus more into the content of the work you've done. This article was amazing. It really was. And I just want to ask you, is there a reason why you chose this topic out of all you could have done? Sure. So forced displacement and migration has been a personal interest of mine for a really long time. And I've been looking for different ways to incorporate it into the work I do, the research I do. And recently, I've been really lucky to get involved with the initiative on forced displacement on campus, which has been a great opportunity to get to know kind of the U.S. legal system for migrants and refugees, as well as get the opportunity to do more research, but the opportunity to study or to research whatever I wanted with the IRR really gave me a chance to kind of start that research, start that process, and kind of get the more global perspective perspective I needed to keep, get going. Wow, yeah, that sounds like an amazing experience. Would you suggest uh, to our audience to undertake similar projects? What, How was your experience quality-wise? Yeah, I think definitely it's important to be interested in and be passionate about the research you're doing. I think for me personally, I have trouble getting going on projects sometimes, but once you start the process and you find all these different sources that incorporate kind of layer on layer of nuance into the topic you're studying, it just gets more and more interesting and more and more actually enjoyable to work on. Is this an ongoing project? Yes, the Initiative on Forced Displacement did a Texas border intensive study over the winter break, and unfortunately it had to be transferred to Zoom, but we did get the opportunity to interview about 14 members of nonprofit organizations participating in both legal and social services for immigrants and refugees coming into the United States over the Texas border. And so hopefully in the spring, we'll be able to travel to Texas as a group. And besides that, we're also able to continue to do like a research workshop over this semester on whatever topic we want to do. So I'm hoping to study kind of the interconnectedness between forced displacement, refugee settlement, and people with intellectual and physical disabilities. Wow, that's such an interesting topic. Um, I would really like to read that too. Could you explain to the audience why the Ugandan refugee system is special in regards to others? So the Ugandan refugee system is fairly unique compared to the rest of the world and especially compared to the United States. So they, as of the past few decades, have implemented a fairly open border policy. And that means that they don't go through the extreme vetting processes that many other countries do. And they also give refugees the, first of all, the potential for long-term settlement within the country and access to social services like healthcare and school. And they, on top of that, they provide um, plots of land so that refugees can become relatively self-sufficient in growing food and integrating into the local economies. That sounds like a great system. So what has gone wrong? Well, I would say a few things have gone wrong in that the government under Museveni isn't always the most humanitarian-focused government, I would say. There's a lot of 
um, fairly documented corruption, especially with the 2021 election and accusations on the international scale of the rigging of the election and the oppression of the oppositional parties. So some kind of speculate that refugee services are not always functioning perfectly in the country and also kind of tend to prioritize refugee services over services for Ugandan citizens. Okay, got you. Uh, in the article, you mentioned that there has been an influx of Afghan refugees, which also complicates things. You specifically talk about a potential conflict spillover and the adverse effect this may have in the already difficult refugee situation there. Care to explain to our audience what a conflict spillover is and how it could affect the situation? So conflict spillover in a more technical, broad sense means that somebody uses a refugee settlement system to enter into a refugee accepting country while simultaneously participating in oppositional movements in their home government or, let's say, oppositional militant movements, both nationally or internationally, and then continuing to participate in those movements while they're in the refugee hosting country. So that's a fairly common concern for most countries who accept large quantities of refugees. However, it's fairly uncommon, especially in countries like the United States that go through extreme vetting processes, but tends to be more of a concern in countries with more open borders like Uganda. And especially with the Taliban having taken over the Afghanistan government, it's a very prevalent concern for people in Uganda, not that it directly impacts their willingness to accept refugees into their communities, but as far as safety goes, it is a concern that many feel is not being addressed by the government. No, yeah, that makes perfect sense because I even remember in my own case being very more mild than what the Ugandans are going through, uh, probably. Last summer I was supposed to go to France for vacation, but because of such such concerns over uh, safety and over terrorist attacks that the news uh, were talking about in the specific place that I was going to go, uh, we cancelled the trip. So it makes sense. So this must be one of the reasons why Ugandans, which you mentioned that were initially very supportive of the refugees, after a while not completely uh, became uh, anti-refugee, but they, there began to exist that sentiment that was not so acceptive of them. I would say so. And to be clear, there is still widespread popular support amongst the Ugandan people for settling refugees and continuing the system of economic integration and social services provided. However, over the past couple of years, especially Uganda has been struggling with various weather conditions that have resulted in significant food scarcity and scarcity of clean water. So when the population kind of sees these refugee services providing food and clean water to refugee families without providing them first to the citizens, there creates a little bit of animosity. And especially when Ugandan citizens end up 
working for refugee families in business or agricultural context just to get a little bit of those food rations provided by the government. But at the same time, this scarcity and the economic situation has also directly impacted refugees in that many hundreds, if not thousands of families have had those plots of land revoked from them to accommodate the influx of new refugees and most likely cut services, but the animosity still is there to some extent. Okay, yeah, but yeah, I mean, it makes sense to be somewhat reduced based on what you've been talking about, both the the risk of safety, um, the concerns over the safety of the citizens, and also the limited resources. And I'm wondering, are there any populist leaders that promoted this kind of thinking and are leading this change of attitude towards the refugees, even the small one? Are there any? Um, well, I would say primarily... Under Museveni's leadership, there is not a lot of oppositional um, populist movements, we'll say. There was one leader who opposed Museveni in the prior election in 2021, and he was arrested several times. At least 50 of his supporters were killed. Hundreds have, quote-unquote, disappeared and it was overall not a very genuine and fair election. And so there's a lot of ways the Museveni's government strongly discourages any kind of opposition movement. So I don't think that there has been any type of organized leadership surrounding those mm-hmm. opinions. Okay, yeah, I understand. Is there is this kind of limitation also existent on the freedom of speech part? Definitely. And... Part of that kind of suppression of the oppositional party in the last election was both the detention of and violence against journalists, which is one of the main reasons that the United States sanctioned Uganda for their um, corruption of the democratic process. But as you can see in the article, that didn't last for long because the United States then needed Uganda's help. So that Sanction was mostly symbolic. Yeah, that was a very interesting part, aspect of your article, the relationship between the USA and Uganda. So could you please explain to our audience too a little more what the situation is like? Sure. So historically speaking, the United States has turned to Uganda quite frequently to help address political situations in the surrounding region that are of significant concern to the United States for various reasons. And that has involved kind of connections between the U.S. government and Uganda's government leading to Uganda using military force on behalf of the U.S. government in neighboring countries like Sudan. And that is kind of transferred into um, refugee resettlement. So with the recent surge of Afghan refugees leaving the country, fleeing the country. The United States has kind of put a pause on refugees coming into the country, or at least they did as of last year. And they requested that Uganda hold and house about 2,000 refugees after the first initial wave of people started fleeing. And that comes in kind of a larger trend of 
countries that typically take in a lot of refugees, like the United States and Canada, kind of outsourcing that responsibility at, at least temporarily to African countries and other countries that they're able to financially support, but then these countries don't really have to deal with the political or xenophobic backlash from their own citizens. Wow, that sounds like a moral question. <laughs> and I would like to ask your opinion on this. I mean, the USA, knowing about this, about the limits of the resources in Uganda, but still making this partnership, this kind of deal to for it and the rest of Africa, as you mentioned in the article, to accept more refugees so that it doesn't have to face the xenophobic blacklash. How moral is that really? And how often does it happen? Well, the question of morality is a little little shifty here. <laughs> yeah. But um, definitely the United States has probably infinitely more resources than Uganda to help settle and support refugees. But as we know, the refugee acceptance and resettlement system in the United States is both exceedingly cautious and very laden down with bureaucratic processes and steps that take months, if not years, to accept refugees into the country and provide what limited social services we have for them. So I guess the bigger question would be what kinds of reforms does the United States need in those processes so that countries with much more limited resources who are more accepting of refugees don't have to house thousands of more people than they are typically accustomed to at any given time. Yeah, I second that. And it's it's a question of how willing are they to do it if they will ever. And it leads me to my next question, which is, how do you think that behaviors like that in the international sphere, the behavior of the nations, affect how other nations also view international relations? Does it set a kind of precedent? Because that is what it seems to me. I think the United States, specifically as a country, does have immense power in the kind of global perception of refugees and asylum seekers. So generally as a trend, I would say that when the United States has significantly lowered their quotas for accepting refugees, that leads to obviously a strain on the systems of other countries who then have to make up the difference. And then that leads to some anti-refugee sentiment in other countries and the lowering of quotas in other countries. So the United States very much sets the precedent for things like that. Yeah, I mean, I agree because it is kind of like, if the other one is able to do that, why should I be the moral one in this issue? Why should I strain my own citizens to help when a global, a uni, a once unipolar power is not willing to do so. Or still, to the opinion of some. Going off a little from the specific article, what issues do you think are going to dominate the global agenda in 2022? Well, definitely refugees, forced displacement. We're seeing Immense forced displacement, obviously, from Afghanistan and other countries in the region that are facing significant political insecurity, political conflict. And on top of that, we're seeing a surplus of climate change refugees and people who are fleeing 
food scarcities and other resource scarcities that come with climate change. Would you mind giving us an example? Yeah, so in 2019, there was tropical cyclone Ida, which hit countries like Mozambique and Zimbabwe and created some forced displacement surges from those countries into neighboring countries, some of which are already accustomed to people leaving these countries too. Yeah, oh my God, I expect so many more events to come in the future with climate change still not having a definite solution. Um, but thank you very much for being here today. This is this was my last question. I'm so glad you you're here and we did this interview. That brings us to the end of this episode. We hope the value brought to your audience by this episode was beneficial to you. As always, thank you for listening to In Relation To. We would like to thank our podcast director, Laila Redler, script editor, Joel Shapiro, co-editors-in-chief for the International Relations Review, Bridget Lang, and the Boston University International Affairs Organization. If you have any comments or questions, please feel free to reach out to us at inrelationto at buiaa.org.